Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Pensions Expert podcast dedicated to the Pension Protection Fund. The PPF's annual report was published earlier today, that's Monday for those of you listening back after a short delay and provides plenty of cause for celebration as well as one or two provocations to concern. It paid out £1 billion to members, its funding position increased by 13.9%, to 127.3%. Its reserves are up to £9 billion from a COVID low of £5.1 billion. Its assets are up, its investment performance is up, its probability of success rose from 83 to 95%. The levy take was up as well, but of concern, claims on the fraud compensation fund are also up. They are expected to rise uh, yet further. These being the key figures, accordingly, I propose to quiz my guests on them principally. Uh, my key figures are the Pension Protection Fund's Chief Executive Officer, Oliver Morley, and its Chief Financial Officer and Chief Actuary, Lisa McCrory, and our thanks to them very much for joining us. Uh, one day, we might, we hope, be able to get through a podcast like this without reference to the pandemic. But uh, that day is not this day, obviously. Um, and Mr. Body, I think you said that the greatest risk remains the uncertainty around future claims following employer insolvency, especially in this uh, challenging environment. With that in mind, uh, I thought I'd begin by asking you to what extent the positive performance that we've laid out uh, above uh, mitigates this risk. Well, it doesn't uh, mitigate it completely. Certainly, from our point of view, it puts us in a good position to be able to meet future claims over the longer term. And we are obviously pleased with the performance as well, especially the uh, uh, 3.9 billion increase in reserves. We've always said that uh, we look more generally in terms of our response to claims. It is difficult to predict um, as we've seen over the pandemic, it is very difficult to predict the progress on claims and uh, whether they'll be significant or not in any, uh, very significant or not in any given year. There are always claims, but it's just obviously the scale is somewhat unpredictable. So um, the figures certainly show that we are in a better place. It doesn't mean that there won't be large claims in the future. And certainly, although the situation for schemes more generally is improving, I don't think anyone of us would be able to say uh, definitively that that will, um, the position on, on surpluses and deficits across all defined benefit pension schemes will always improve. Clearly, there could be very major changes in the market that mean that what we consider to be very careful accumulation of reserves uh, um, won't be absolutely the right approach in the future. Lisa, is that uh, is there anything else you'd say on that topic? No, I think that's a good summary. The our reserves have put us in a good position for the future, and um, you mentioned our probability of success had improved. Um, it's increased from eighty three percent to ninety five percent, and really the reason for that's twofold. Our own funding position has improved, but also the funding of the schemes that we protect has improved too as a result of the favourable market conditions. And whilst that's really good news, I think it is worth remembering that that has been a result of market movements. It's not the fact that employers have been putting extra money into their pension schemes to plug their deficits. And indeed, it reminds us just how volatile the scheme funding can be. I guess it's reassuring for us that our reserves have grown and it means that we are in a better place relative to last year to face these claims in the future. 
there has been no industry more damaged than the makers of crystal balls. But if I were going to ask you to make a prediction, uh, obviously we've not at the moment seen mass insolvencies. One of the other predictions that has not yet come true is that, for instance, the end of government support via furlough would trigger a mass round of insolvencies. And as yet, that hasn't happened. With that in mind, would you say you're optimistic about how things are going? And does the PPF expect any market increase in insolvencies? Uh, if so, on what scale? Or are we coming out of this relatively well? I guess this time last year, life was looking very uncertain and, you know, we were projecting a significant increase in claims. That hasn't happened over the year, as you mentioned. This year we have had 39 claims in the fund, which was actually very similar to the year before. But, you know, corporate insolvencies in the UK are at a record low. And our central projections still show that we would expect claims to increase over the next 12 months. However, it's very difficult to project that and our funding strategy is very long term. We always expect periods of higher and low claims and that's precisely why we hold our reserves to protect us when we go through a period of higher claims. Yeah, and I would add in terms of a general market point, I mean, the governor of the Bank of England um, was clear about inflation and, and concerns on inflation. Obviously, the impact of inflation on our universe, as it were, is one that will pay particular attention to. But just as it was quite difficult to predict what would happen with furlough and things like that in terms of the impact on our universe, I think it is true that inflation as well could add a level of volatility to that that makes it quite difficult to tell exactly what will happen over the over the coming year. The report explains that the PPF has been monitoring the schemes with the biggest deficits and, of course, the performance of their sponsoring employers. What insights have been gleaned from this monitoring as regards, say, the profile of those schemes and those sectors that are posing the biggest risk? I mean, if you were to expect a greater number of claims later in the year or perhaps into next year, from whence are they likely to be coming? Well, that's a question that we never answer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can uh, I, I can I can definitely say that to you. I mean, we, we um, you know, obviously that's a really, really important part of our overall modeling and 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 uh, the way we manage claims over the future. It is also quite sensitive and in fact comes under the directly under the Pensions Act in terms of our ability to talk about that. All I can do is assure um, listeners more generally that it's something that we spend a lot of time uh, um, not only thinking about, but uh, um, assessing in quite some detail. And it drives a lot of our approach and indeed the various figures you see in terms of probability of success as well. And I would give a little plug to our purple book. The latest one was published in December 2020, and that gives quite a lot of information in terms of the profile of the universe and the profile of funding. So we show that by different maturity levels and by size of schemes as well. So plenty of information in there. I think that is the only question I was going to ask that invites you to break the law, but... Uh, subsequently. Um, if we move um, from organisations to, to individuals, so the report says that there's uh, num- the number and the cost of, say, write-offs in the case of overpayments has been uh, going up as well over this period from 126 in 2019-22, and they amounted to £151,648 to 276 overpayments, written off totaling 
pounds. For the uninitiated, why should the pandemic have led to an increase in these write-offs? What impact as well does that have on, the, say, the broader funding position? Well, I guess the numbers are very small in the context of our overall funding and indeed in terms of the level of compensation we actually pay out as well. Some of these write-offs are happen when a member dies. So we will have paid their compensation in advance and um, they may then pass away partway through the month. Obviously, one of the, the sad realities of the pandemic is that we've seen an increase in the number of deaths we've processed over the year, which will have had an impact on the figures that you've just quoted. Well, in which case, we'll move on from that, I think, to the fraud uh, compensation fund. So the recent court cases, which have gone some way toward clarifying that the extent of the coverage that the fraud compensation fund has to provide, especially with respect to scam schemes and the PPF's report notes that the FCF has so far received applications for nine claims totaling £47.3 million, but is aware of 117 more possible applications totaling £358.1 million as of the 31st of March this year. Uh, The assets of the FCF at the moment, I believe, total £33.9 million, and the intent is to enable the FCF to take out a loan to cover the shortfall, and there's legislation effectuating this uh, currently in its third reading in Parliament. So um, I thought on this topic I'd begin by asking whether you can provide us with an update uh, on that legislation. It is progressing, actually, according to plan. So I think given the circumstances, and they're fairly unique, I mean, it's not often that public bodies such as ours effectively ask the courts to clarify. But I think it's so important from the point of view of some of the victims of these frauds that we did have real clarity as to where the liability for paying um, this fell. And obviously, you know, we take our responsibilities extremely Seriously, now we've had clarity on that um, from the courts and the Fraud Compensation Fund will get itself into a position to be able to pay them where um, it's clear that there is a you know, compensation due. So in terms of progress, I think, I think we've, we've made real, real progress in terms of clarity. In terms of payment, obviously, we have to go through a process with the schemes to make sure that they fall under the the criteria that the court were clear on, and that's the process we're going through now. Um, and from a financial perspective, making sure that we're in a position to be able to pay that again over the long term. The report says you are in the process of, of assessing the applications uh, and anticipate paying these and others of which you're aware over a four-year period. Is that the reason that it takes that long, that it takes four years, is that there is still clarity to be had on eligibility, for instance, or is there another reason why a claim should take so long to process? Well, I guess we're including within the four years the the time to obviously get the court to definitively come up with an opinion. Um, I think we have very clear criteria now, but it does take some work to, um, both from the schemes themselves, obviously, which... um, may not be in a position to be able to help us with understanding, given their circumstances, uh, really understanding some of the background on it. So it does take a little bit of time to work through the applications and to make sure that they fit those very specific core criteria, but certainly not the, the, you know, the four years includes that aggregate time for court and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And I suppose it it does also afford some time for this this loan facility to be put in place uh, as well, doesn't it? In the interim, though, should, should a claim fall due now or before that loan facility is in, in place, which does exceed or take over the, the thresholds, the assets that the FCF currently has, 
what happens in that situation? Is that situation likely to arise? And if it does, what happens? No, the situation, um, we're monitoring the cash flows pretty carefully, as you would imagine. You've quoted the assets that we have. Um, the first couple of cases that are working through, we have more than enough money to settle those. Um, will also be the numbers you quoted were as at 31 March over this financial year, we'll be receiving additional levy income, which will help go towards those schemes too. So we're very confident that we'll have the money that we need in place for when we need to settle the applications. Just one more on, on this topic, if I may. It might come as news to students in particular that loans have to be repaid, but um, nevertheless, they do. <laughs> So in this situation, when does this money get repaid? How is the money raised to be repaid? And over what period of time is that loan repaid? Should it be taken? We're still finalising the details of the loan with Treasury. But, you know, affordability will be one of the factors that we will be discussing with them when we we finalise the agreement. In which case, uh, we might move on to the levy, if that's all right. Um, I know the levy collected rose from uh, $567 million to $630 million, uh, despite the, the two-month interest-free payment extension that was offered to help alleviate the pandemic's uh, pressure on levy payers. And in September, uh, the PPF extended its levy bill easement for another year and announced the 2022-23 levy consultation. It expects to collect $415 million from levy payers, which is a reduction of $105 million from the 520 million levy estimate in, in the previous year. There's a trade-off, I assume, in these financially straightened times between need for reliable funding and the need to preserve those who, who provide it. Is that the, the trade-off that's foremost in your mind when you decide whether or not to extend what could be argued to be quite a generous measure such as this? Yeah, I mean, for, from our point of view, obviously, the most important priority is is members is that we're in a position to be able to pay compensation to our members for the whole period of the uh, of the PPF and and make sure they do receive what they're entitled to but we are incredibly conscious i think of the the burden on schemes and levy payers throughout that and we are continuously looking to to use lisa's phrase actually um, a, 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 we're continually data driven to make sure that where there is an opportunity to make reduce levy in line with our expected claims, that we we can do so. But obviously, that's something that that requires um, a lot of analysis, a lot of projection, but also a lot of work to make sure that we are in that position. The better we perform in terms of probability of success and reserves, the more likely it is, but it cannot be a promise given claims, but the more likely it is we'll be in a position to look at ways to reduce levy over time. But it's not something we can guarantee, but certainly it's something we are always looking for the opportunity to do. I would add, you know, the the way that we calculate our levy is a risk-based measure. So if the risk in the universe reduces, then levy should fall without any um, preemptive action from the board. And I guess that's what we've seen this year. Um, Scheme funding has improved and that's really been the driver for the, the reduction from the 520 million that you talked about to the 415. Is there a scope in place to, to review that, for instance, if if the economic recovery were better than expected, for instance, or schemes were less in need of a, of a levy reduction than they are at present, and the PPF could justify taking perhaps more than, than it would 
on balance of risk take at the moment. Is that measure something that you will review, or is that just go, is that set now from uh, for the period that will run? No, we review your um, our funding decisions on an annual basis, as is a good practice. So we will consider all the factors. We chatted a little bit about how scheme funding has improved, but you know there's still real risk out there. If you follow our seven. 800 index you'll see that around half of the schemes remain in deficit and um, at at a current date you know that deficit's around about 100 billion pounds and that's come down from 150 as at the year end so we're still underwriting quite a large amount of risk and although it's really good news that funding has improved over the last year 18 months I think it is a reminder of just how volatile scheme funding can be and in particular how sensitive scheme funding is to to guilt yields and we know that quite a large part of the universe still don't hedge their inflation and interest rate risk so you know that's the reason why we can see quite a lot of volatility in scheme funding over time. Finally, if I may, there's a a number of, well, there's a couple at least of court cases which are outstanding or or rulings which are ongoing with a bearing on the Pension Protection Fund. There's the the European Court of Justice's Hampshire ruling and then the Bauer ruling as well. With regards to the the former of those, I I think the the report acknowledges that no party does plan to appeal the the Hampshire ruling and the PPF is still looking at how to implement it. Uh, Can you provide us with an update on, on where you are in that process? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're making really good progress. So we're starting to, well, not starting, but we're obviously continuing the process of engaging with the members who are affected. And certainly, I would say we're picking up the pace on that uh, uh, definitely at, at this stage. So I can't say definitively that it's done, but certainly we're reaching the point where um, we're starting to move forward quite a lot. Is there a date at which, which we can expect it to be completed or is it still early days for that? It's probably early days to say in terms of completion, but certainly we would expect, uh, the best way to put it is we would certainly expect to be compliant with the court and their expectation is that we'll be, we'll be timely on it. So we're certainly moving forward. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, one more very quick question, if I may. Journalists are always on the lookout for anything that even has a whiff of scandal about it. So if you read in a report that there's a missing £950,000, inevitably we're going to ask a question about that. Um, the, the report, I think, just mentions that it was an error in the process of constructing the liability hedging requirement. I don't suppose you can give us any more details of what precisely went wrong to, to make £950,000 disappear. Well, we always aim to be as transparent as possible as part of our reporting. But to be honest, it it represented a very short period where we had some inaccurate market pricing on um, billions of pounds of assets. So the problem was spotted pretty quickly as part of our internal reviews and rectified. And then the money was obviously made back pretty quickly after that, given the overall performance of the fund that we chatted about at the start. Fair enough. In which case, thank you very much. That's the end of it from my perspective. That's all the questions I had to ask, but you'd be very generous to come on and we're always keen to hear your insights. So if if you had a a sort of a closing thought on which to leave us, perhaps looking forward to expectations for the future, what would it be? Well, I mean, I was going to 
go back to the past in a way and just say, you know, we, we haven't talked that much about the figures. They kind of stand on their own. But I would say that if you were to look back, say, to 2005 and ask yourself whether the Pension Protection Fund would be the UK success story that I think it, it probably is now in terms of where we are, our ability to make these very significant commitments to our members and more generally around the safety of their pensions um the ppf really has taken real strides and you know although i i think we're all very conscious this has been a a a good market year i think generally the ppf's overall performance has been very very strong including you know when it comes to customer service or just generally operationally it's been an important year for us and uh um and we're quite proud of it i think excellent well that brings us to the close uh, of the program. Thank you both to Oliver and to Lisa very much for joining us. Thank you to our listeners very much for listening to us. And as ever, we will be back in two weeks' time. We hope to see you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.